verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hope firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to rep represent people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was hurt because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thank you. Thanks, Adrian. Good, everyone. It's great to be with you tonight. Uh, my name's Sam. I'm the, the pastor here at Uni Church. Love to meet you for dinner after the service. Uh, please do stick around and join us. It's my joy uh, to lead us now as we spend some time reflecting on this part of God's Word and, and thinking about what it means for our lives. And as we look at this, this passage, here's like the, the kind of part of our experience as followers of Jesus that's in view here. Here's, here's the, the part of life as Christians that this passage is about. How does our sin affect our relationship with God as Christians? How do we come to God in our sin when we're saved? We kind of know the, the experience of this question, what it feels like, right? How do you think about yourself and about God when you stuffed up? When your sin is all too present in your vision? Maybe you do like what I've often done in my life and for a little while you kind of just avoid God. You don't really come to him in prayer, might not spend time in his word. You kind of wait until that sin that's so in your vision is kind of feels distant enough or far enough in the rearview review mirror that you can approach God again and feel like it's okay. We just don't need to talk about what happened. Or maybe, as has happened to me in other times in my life, your, your prayer life becomes fixated on the sin that you're all too aware of. And it's hard to bring requests or other parts of your life to God because all you can see is this sin that feels like it's blocking your relationship with God. Have you had that kind of experience? You know that, that feeling? Well, the, the answer to that question and to the experience of it, which this passage gives us, 
is that for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are Christians, our sin is no barrier between us and God. Our sin is no barrier between us and God. And so this is my, my deep hope, my deep prayer for our time now, is that you would believe, right, and not just know in your head, but deeply believe and feel and experience the truth of this, that your sin does not make God love you less. Your sin does not stop God from listening to your prayers. Your sin does not leave God disappointed in you. The author of Hebrews puts this point in verse 16. If you've got your new sheet, uh, have a look with me at verse 16, or if you've got a Bible there. He says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace. How? With confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. He wants them to know, God wants us to know, that we can approach God with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. One author says that this passage, these few verses here from 14 to 16, more than any other in the Bible, is the heartbeat of Christ. There are many amazing insights from throughout Scripture into the nature of God and and into Jesus, but this, this passage points right into the heart of Jesus. And we're going to dig into three kind of key truths from verses 14 to 16 as we explore it. We'll mostly focus on those three verses up the top. The verses in chapter 5 are really important as well in kind of unpacking more of what it means for Jesus to be a priest, which we're going to talk about in a moment, but we'll mostly focus on 14 to 16. So have that kind of in the foreground as as we go through. And if you're a note taker, these could perhaps be uh, your headings. His work is for you. He's gone ahead of you. And his heart is for you. So first, let's talk about Jesus' work for you, for us, as our great high priest. The word priest, right, is one that you might be familiar with or less familiar with. It's a word that we still use a bit today in our culture. I'm an Anglican priest. Uh, Alex, John, some of the other ministers here are Anglican priests. And so I have this funny experience as an Anglican priest uh, when I meet new people. So at the moment, I'm meeting kinder parents, right, as my daughter starts kinder. And when I introduce myself and ask what I'm doing, if I say that I'm a priest, I get one of two reactions. I don't really know why either happened. The first one is that they apologise for swearing. I don't know why, but they feel like they have to do that. And the second thing is that they, they kind of give me their religious resume. Someone will tell me like, oh yes, I went to a Catholic school, or um, my uncle was a minister, or my grandmother goes to church, or something. People feel this need to justify their vaguely religious connections to me. People don't really know what to do with a priest, right? And, and sadly, a lot of people hear the word priest now as a suspicious word because of what some priests have done to people. 
But that's a very, very different view of priests to the view that the original readers of this letter had. These people who'd grown up Jewish, ethnically and religiously Jewish, but then had, had become Christians. They had a very different view of priests. And for them, for the world that they lived in, priests were a very important part of life, really important part of their worship, their community, their identity. And so I'll try to help, I guess, put us in the shoes of these ancient Israelites who've become Christians as they understand priests, which, which matters because what the author's doing for them, right, is he's going, hey, you know, you know priests, you know about them, how important they are. Let me show you how they point to Jesus, who's even better. But we come from a different position, unless anyone here is, has grown up Jewish. We, we know more about Jesus than we do about Jewish priests, right? And so we kind of have to read this way in order to understand how they're reading back that way. So it's helpful for us to understand how they understood priests. And let's do this with a, a bit of a thought exercise. We'll kind of imagine a scene together. Imagine we are faithful, God-fearing, ancient Israelites, people of the Jewish religion. How do we approach God? How do we relate to God, right? You and I, we, we have certain ways that we relate to God, how we interact with him. But if we're ancient Jews, how do we relate to Yahweh, the God of our people who, who sustains us, who gives us everything? Well, we go to the temple. We have to go to Jerusalem to get to the temple, right? So we've got to walk there. Lots of us might have to walk for days to get to Jerusalem to get to the temple. And wherever we're coming from, we bring lots of stuff with us. We bring sacrifices, right? So we'll bring animals, uh, we'll bring grain, we might bring oil, we might bring other things that we're going to sacrifice to God at the temple in Jerusalem. And we'll, we'll be bringing different things depending on how wealthy we are. Some of us might be bringing lambs, bulls, goats. Some of us can only afford to bring pigeons or small amounts of, of grain. We're all bringing different things to sacrifice to God. And as we come from the kind of surrounding countryside towards Jerusalem, it's on a hill and the, the temple is the, the biggest, grandest building in the middle of Jerusalem. So it's this big kind of climax experience of our religious life as we come to the temple, as we come to Jerusalem. And so we get there and we enter the outer court, which is kind of the, like the grounds around the temple. Now, ladies, this is as far as you can come. Gentiles, this is as far as you can come. Anyone who's ceremonially unclean, this is as far as you can come. But don't worry, while you wait, there's plenty of things to do in the outer courts. It's packed out with people. There's people uh, selling animals for sacrifice. There's people selling souvenirs. There's people selling food. There's people exchanging money. People having conversations everywhere. It's, it's busy. It's kind of a market vibe in the outer courts. And as you come into the outer courts, we smell it and we hear it before we even enter. We smell burning meat and grain. We, we hear the sound of, of animals animals in the last moments of their lives. We see blood 
splattered all over the place. We see people coming and going from the temple. So those of us uh, who are Jewish men, we go a little bit further in, but then we have to stop as well. And we get to the edge of where we're allowed to go, and beyond that, only the priests can go, right? So we bring the things that we're coming to offer for sacrifice, whatever that is, and we, we give them to the priests. The priests take those things from us, and they take them to one of the altars around this kind of inner court of the temple. The altars are like the big tables where these animals are slaughtered. It's like an, an abattoir of sacrifice. Hundreds and hundreds of animals, day after day after day, year after year after year. More and more and more, all sacrificed by these priests. And as we, as we give our sacrifices to the priests, as they do their thing, we can see beyond them the main building of the temple. That's the holy place. We've read about what's in there. We've heard about what's in there. We will never go in there. There's huge pillars. There's huge doors. We know it's important, but we can't go in there. Behind those pillars, behind those doors, are some really key kind of artifacts for us. There's, there's a table uh, where the bread of the presence sits. There's a lampstand. Uh, there's a few other kind of sacred items in that holy place. And only the priests can go in there, and only at certain times. At the back of that holy place then, so we hear, so we've read, there's a huge curtain, massive towers above anyone who goes in there. It's thick, it's heavy, it's really old. And the curtain is covered in kind of garden imagery with two enormous angels holding flaming swords. They're like the angels that blocked Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden after they were ejected because of their sin. Like those angels at the garden, these angels on the curtain say, stop, you can't come in here. This is as far as you go. And once a year, only once a year, one guy, only one guy, goes through that curtain. Because behind that curtain is the most holy place. And that is where God is. That's where God lives, behind that curtain. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, one priest, after an exhausting process of cleansing himself ritually from sin, he goes behind that curtain to be in the presence of God. Famously, right, he goes in with a rope tied around his ankle so that if he's not clean enough or he does something wrong and God strikes him dead, we can pull him out. We don't want to have to wait a whole year to get the body out, right? That's what it was like for these people to relate to God. How would that, how would that experience be? Think, think to yourself now, what, what would that experience of your religious life be like? You can only come to God through layers of protections and veils. Not protection for God, protection for you. Because if you get close to him, you'll die. That's what it looks like to relate to Yahweh as an ancient Israelite. 
As one of my kids' books puts it, because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. And don't get me wrong, right? This whole thing, the whole temple, the whole sacrificial system, all of it, is God's gift. It's his grace. It's his kindness. God was not obliged to give his people any of that to make a way for them to relate to him. He gave them this system as a way that they could relate to him without dying because of their sin coming into the presence of a holy God. This temple is an echo of the Garden of Eden, right? which, an, which is an echo of heaven itself. This is God's grace. But it's veiled. And it's, it's into that scene, into that kind of religious world, even into that very city and that place, that Jesus comes. He enters the scene. The Word became flesh. God became human and lived as one of us. Then he brought the ultimate sacrifice of his own body, his own life, becoming the perfect priest and sacrifice for us in himself. His ministry, right, when he was on earth, was a priestly ministry. Think about the things that Jesus did as he went around. He healed people. He cleansed them from the things that kept them out of the temple so that they could go in. He taught people about how to rightly worship God. He, he forgave sins. He did things that priests do. But unlike other priests, even unlike that once a year, one guy priest, Jesus never sinned. It's in chapter 4, verse 15. He did not sin. And so he, he's different to every other priest. And he's uniquely suitable to be our great high priest. He's uniquely suitable to be our great high priest because he's truly one of us and yet he's without sin. Those two truths are the, the, the anchors for this. Right, look, look really closely with me there at, at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. There's a, there's a double negative there, right? It's a little confusing. So it's saying we have a high priest who is able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That, those two things, that's why he can be our great high priest. That's what makes him uniquely suitable to be our great high priest. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, Jesus is not Zeus, right? He's not this kind of powerful, majestic, but distant and unknowable God on a throne somewhere. Jesus is not Zeus. And he's not Superman, living among us, but too different to us to ever truly be one of us. No, he's not Zeus. He's not Superman. He came as, as truly human to live among us truly humans. He knows what it is to be tired, to be hungry, to be lonely. He knows what it is to grieve, 
to be abandoned by the people that he loved the most. And here's why that, why that matters, I think. It matters because sometimes we think that because Jesus never sinned, he can't really understand us. Because there's a part of our human experience that he didn't share, because he didn't sin. But imagine, imagine your fight against sin is like swimming across a river, a, a wide and fast flowing river. Sometimes in your fight against sin, you make it a little way across the river. Sometimes you might make it halfway across, but you never make it to the other side of the river. Jesus is the the only one who has swum the whole way across the river. And so he knows the struggle of that swim. He knows the struggle of the temptation against sin, even beyond what we do. He is truly human. He has truly been tempted in every way, just as we are. Or, or ask, which, which weightlifter knows better the, the burden of the weight that they're trying to lift? Is it the weightlifter who can lift the weight to their, to their knees or maybe to their chest before being unable to lift any further and dropping it down? Or is it the weightlifter who can lift it all the way above their head and hold it there? But Jesus knows the burden. He knows the experience of temptation even beyond what we do. C.S. Lewis wrote about this, and he, he wrote this. He said, we all give in to sin before it reaches its full force. But Jesus, in never giving in, experiences the full force of every temptation. So, so hear this. He knows your temptation in its fullness. If you're fighting what feels like a losing battle with lust, know that Jesus experienced temptation every bit as real as you. And he never indulged it. He never gave in. He crossed the river. And so he can truly sympathize with you. If you're struggling with bitterness or, or resentment or hatred, he felt and he fought and he defeated that temptation. If you find yourself tempted to please people instead of God, so was Jesus. He gets you. And so he can be your great high priest. He can truly represent you before God because he has been tempted in every way, just as you are, yet he did not sin. So that's, that's Jesus' work for you, his priestly work for you. And that, that work is applied, it's made effective, it's put into practice because he has gone ahead of you. Have a look at verse 14 with me in your booklet or your Bible. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, so that's what we've just been exploring, right? What it means for him to be a great high priest. Who has ascended into heaven? He has ascended into heaven. Right, so, so remember the temple where those Jews came to worship, that's an echo of heaven, the place where God is, 
where he meets and dwells with his people. And Jesus, as our great high priest, he has gone from the outer courts through the holy place into the most holy place, into the very presence of God ahead of us to lead us in. He he comes into the outer courts, he takes our hand, he leads us through. No more barriers, nothing more blocking us from God, takes us into the most holy place, into heaven, into the throne room of God. He takes us in to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he says, Father, this is Sam, he's he's with me, he's with us. He makes a place for us. Do you remember what happens at Jesus' death? It's It's in Mark chapter 15. As he dies, that curtain with the angels and their flaming swords, what happens to it? It's torn in two from top to bottom. God makes a way for us to be in his presence. Sin is no more a barrier between us and God because of what Jesus has done. And Jesus rose from the grave, right? He ascended into heaven. He went ahead of us in his words to prepare a place for us there, to to bring us with him. He's there right now, tonight. He is sitting by God the Father in heaven, leaning across, interceding on our behalf. That's what he does for us. A.W. Tozer says it very simply. He says, Jesus is our man in heaven. He represents us before God. And this is why, why we don't need a human priest or anyone else to give us access to God and convince God to hear our prayers. Right? Like, like we said before, I'm, I'm a priest in the sense that my role is to serve God and, and the church. But you don't need me to speak to God or to know that he hears you, right? You've got Jesus. You've got a great high priest sitting next to the Father on your behalf. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence because you have a better priest and he's sitting with God in heaven, leaning across, speaking to the Father on your behalf. So you don't need to pray to saints. You don't need to pray to Mary. You don't need a guru. You don't need ancestor spirits. You have a man in heaven who brings your prayers to the Father. One uh, Puritan author called William Bridge, he wrote that it's like, like a child going out to the field to pick a bunch of flowers for their father but they mix in weeds and thistles with their flowers. But the child brings the bouquet to their mother and she gently picks out the weeds and the thistles. She arranges the flowers, ties a ribbon around it and hands it back to the child to present to their father. That's what Jesus does for our prayers. He takes your your fumbling, messy, sometimes selfish, sometimes defeated prayers And he brings them beautifully to the Father, who delights to hear them and answer them. So, 
I guess we've been dealing in kind of theological truths or, or points, right? But how should these things that are, that are true, these, these points, how should they land for us? What should they do in our hearts? Why, why do they, they matter to us? Remember that, that author's comment that these, these words are like the heartbeat of Jesus. Right? God placed this passage in the Bible so that you might approach the throne of grace with confidence. This is here so that you would know that your sin is no barrier between you and God and so that you would feel that in your soul. So for our final section, let's talk about Jesus' heart for you. Here's here's a question for you to, to think about. Try and kind of answer this in your mind. How does Jesus feel about your sin? How does Jesus feel about your sin? Right, he's, he's fully, perfectly human. He has emotion. How does he feel about your sin? When you sin, what's Jesus' emotional response? Well, if, if you're anything like me, then your, your kind of default response is to think that Jesus is disappointed in me because of my sin. That Jesus is frustrated that my sin just keeps happening. That he's fed up with my inability to shake off this sin that's been with me for so long. So after all, that's how I feel about my sin, right? But Christ's heart isn't like that. Look again at, at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. The old King James Version of the Bible translated that word weaknesses as infirmities. It's our our suffering and our limitations and our sin. Jesus feels sympathy for us in our sin. What does that mean? How can that be when he never sinned himself? Well, there's a really uh, helpful illustration that's often used to help us get this. Any, we got any physics students in the room? I know there is. I know there's like 50 physics students in the room. That's fine. They don't want to put their hands up. They're working on it. That's fine. <laughs> Maybe if you're, if you're learning physics, uh, you might have heard about sympathetic resonance. So symp- sympathetic resonance is this phenomenon that occurs if you have two instruments, maybe tuning forks or or pianos, right? If we had two pianos on the stage and I hit a note on one piano, the corresponding string uh, of the key on the other piano would begin to resonate, to vibrate in sympathy with the key that I've pressed. They, They connect at that level and resonate with one another. And in Christ, there is a, there's a sympathetic resonance between his heart and yours. So when the strings of your human heart are touched by temptation, his human nature resonates with you. He's tempted in every way, just as you are, yet he did not sin. Right, so he's not disappointed in you. Do you hear that? When you sin, he is not disappointed in you. 
His heart for you in your sin is not one of judgment or frustration or turning away. No, even in the very moments of your sin, his heart is for you. His heart breaks with yours. His heart longs with yours for you to be free of this sin. And we see this in Jesus' life on earth, right? What's he like when he's walking around as a man in the Gospels? He never condemns the sinners. No, he he meets them with compassion, with grace, with forgiveness, with restoration. That was his heart then, and it's the same heart now. The first time that my daughter had gastro, I remember sitting in bed with her as her little body heaved and shook with the fever and stroking her hair through her confusion and her her pain and her fear. What what was my heart for her in her weakness? Love, right? Compassion, not disappointment. Hating the sickness, loving the child. And that's God's heart for you in your weaknesses in your infirmities, in your sin. He knows how sin entangles you. He knows it weighs you down. He knows your weakness. His heart is for you. He hates the sin, but he loves you. So, brothers and sisters, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. You can come to God with confidence. If you are fighting sin and it feels like you're losing, God does not love you any less. If you are struggling with sin, he does not listen to your prayers any less. He does not put you out in the outer courts. So bring your prayers to God with confidence. Do this together like we do every week. Tonight, after the service, there will be people near the front here who love to pray with you and pray for you. Can I urge you to take use of that gift to come forward for prayer? Whatever is on your heart, whatever sin entangles you, bring it to God in prayer. Your father loves to listen to your prayers, like a father receiving flowers from his child. And we're going to start by, by doing that right now, by coming to God in prayer, approaching the throne of grace with confidence. So would you do that with me as we pray? Jesus, we thank you that you are our great high priest. Thank you that you are truly one of us. You truly understand us. And that it's your joy and delight to bring us to God. Thank you that our sin is no more barrier between us and God because we are in you. Help us to know that and feel that and live that today and every day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.